This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Climate Leviathan, A Political Theory of Our Planetary Future, by Jeff Mann and Joel Wainwright. Despite the science in the summits, leading capitalist states have not achieved anything close to an adequate level of carbon mitigation. There is now simply no way to prevent the planet from breaching the threshold of 2 degrees Celsius set by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. What are the likely political and economic outcomes of this? Where is the overheating world heading? To further the struggle for climate justice, we need to have some idea of how the existing global order is likely to adjust to a rapidly changing environment. Climate Leviathan provides a radical way of thinking about the intensifying challenges to the global order. Drawing on a range of political thought, Joel Wainwright and Jeff Mann argue that rapid climate change will transform the world's political economy and the fundamental political arrangements most people take for granted. The result will be a capitalist planetary sovereignty, a terrifying eventuality that makes the construction of viable, radical alternatives truly imperative. Climate Leviathan, A Political Theory of Our Planetary Future by Jeff Mann and Joel Wainwright. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. My guest today is Randy Bryce, a.k.a. Iron Stash, the iron worker and former Bernie Sanders delegate running hard to unseat the Speaker of the House. Almost nothing short of fully automated luxury communism by Christmas time would bring me greater satisfaction than Bryce beating Paul Ryan. Before we get rolling, please support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. It's your support that makes this thing possible. We put loads of work into it and pay well nothing. So please make a voluntary show of support for this show right now at patreon.com slash the dig. Also, this week's regular dig is a shorter diglet-like length because you all need some time, I'm guessing, to digest last week's mega interview with the brilliant Aziz Rana. Okay, here's the show. Randy Bryce, a.k.a. Iron Stash, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Great to be talking with you. So, how was your visit to the State of the Union? It was quite an experience. I mean, last year, <laughs> I never, it wasn't someplace I expected to be, you know. Last year, I was hanging out the side of a building 500 feet up in the air, swapping out glass. And um, so when I was invited by Congressman Pocan, it was, it, it was something else. It was a big deal. I understand that some Republicans, um, or at least a Republican from your home state, was not pleased that you had been invited. Right. Uh, that would be Congressman Sensenbrenner. He uh, he had an issue with it. And it was, I mean, he brought up the fact, he didn't like the fact that we were running commercials, we were making money off of it. But then I, you know, I found out after it happened that Donald Trump was apparently flashing donors' names on the screen. And I, I didn't see any part 
where Congressman Sensenbrenner had an issue with that. So it was just kind of, I guess, kind of expected. A lot of hypocrisy going on these days. It's uh, it's remarkable that Republicans are making uh, a big deal over decorum, <laughs> right? Given their tre- recent track record, and right. uh, James Sensenbrenner, <laughs> of all people, who was the author of the infamous 2005 Sensenbrenner bill, one of the most mean-spirited anti-immigrant <laughs> right. pieces of legislation right. in American history. Yeah, he's he's in a safe seat, so um, you know, not su- not surprised by it. So, when did you first decide to? to take a run at at the seat currently held by the House Speaker, Paul Ryan? After the election and Donald Trump um, was was president, a lot of people were reaching out, and especially it was the Latino community dealing, you know, there were people dealing with the immigrant rights issues that were just terrified. Their, their families were going to literally be, be ripped apart, either while they went to school or with knocks on their door in the middle of the night. People were terrified. So... I decided to get more involved right after the election, um, closer to, to home where I live. And it was actually at the May Day March. People had been asking me beforehand, you know, you may, why don't you think about running for Congress? We think you'd, you'd be perfect and the exact opposite of a Paul Ryan. You know, Paul Ryan, for the past 20 years, he's been in D.C. cozying up to special interests, billionaires, lobbyists, and the tax scam bill shows that shows who he's, who he's there representing. And it's not the people of the first district. You know, meanwhile, the past 20 years, I've, I've been busting my rear end trying to make ends meet, um, you know, dealing, dealt with cancer, with, which bankrupted me. And I noticed that was while having two full-time jobs. And so it, it got to the point on that May Day March when a state senator, Chris Larson, came up to me and he said, Randy, your name keeps coming up as somebody who, uh, who can take out Paul Ryan. And, and uh, is it okay if I pass it along? And I just kind of looked around at the tens of thousands of people that I knew, you know, they're, they're terrified at the, what was going on in DC. And, but yet they all had a look of determination on their face. There wasn't, you know, I knew they were scared, but they were determined and, and we were showing up in numbers. And when I was asked at that particular time and place, it was, there really wasn't any, any option to answer. No, I won't do it because you know, we need we need representation in D.C. that's going to stand out for people and bring us together. And I was sick of the divide and conquer that was taking place. And did you first get involved in in politics as a as a union member? Was that your first your first involvement? Yes, um, I was the political coordinator for the iron workers and had became extremely active after Scott Walker got elected and proceeded to attack workers. And I mean, he's, he's still there today doing it every year, um, passing more garbage legislation that, that makes, you know, workplaces more dangerous. Um, and, and it's just harder for working people overall these days to, to stay ahead, to get ahead. And you, um, also got involved in the, the Bernie campaign. Is that right? I did. I did. I was actually, I was working on a, the same construction site I was talking about hanging off the side of when I got a phone call from his campaign and it was lunchtime. So I was eating lunch. On a, <laughs> so you weren't, you, know, you weren't up in the air at the time when the phone call came in. No, it, it was, it was <laughs> literally, it was during lunchtime. So we were sitting down eating lunch, but it was on a construction site. And I was just thinking as I got this phone call and it was, you know, the Bernie campaign asking me if I'd speak at one of his rallies. And it was just, um, it was very surreal. And it was part of the phone call too included the fact that they were wondering 
if there are any job actions going on, you know, like picket lines. And I'm thinking, what kind of, you know, how can you not support somebody who is asking about where a picket line is so they can go walk on it? Um, that's, I mean, that's why I'm, that's me, you know, that's, that's something that's important to me is to stand with working people. And here was something, you know, I think of my son, he's probably been on the more picket lines than probably 98% of the people in our state. <laughs> and so here's, a, you know, a presidential candidate that's taking time out. And I know now too, how busy I am running a congressional campaign. Um, but for a presidential candidate to, you know, actively seek out a picket line that, that said a lot to me. I think that you said, if I remember correctly, at some point, I don't live for the union. I'm alive because of my union. Right. And that, that was in testimony um, on behalf of, the, you know, when they pushed right to work. And um, somebody had asked about that. I mean, it was like 50 percent more fatalities in a state that that has right to work in place. And but what did you mean specifically about being alive because of your union? Well, just I, first of all. Um, the ironworkers union originated when a group of ironworkers, we pulled their money together in order because of a high fatality rate, which even to this day, we're in the top 10 most dangerous professions in the country. So the first ironworkers union consisted of a bunch of ironworkers that got together to pool their money so that we could provide a decent burial when somebody died on the job. And then we found out that by staying, sticking together and demanding safe work conditions um, and saying, well, look, this job's not going to get done unless you take care of certain safety issues so that we don't have to spend our money for a burial. Um, we found out that by sticking together, we had, we had voice and, and a strength to be able to make demands like that. Um, so, you know, if it wasn't a work, a work site is safe, regardless of whether or not you pay union dues because of the union that has, has um, brought about those safe work conditions. So when I say that, it's it's about, you know, having a voice, knowing that we have a voice in the workplace and demanding that um, things be made safe and instead of, uh, you know, safety costs money for just the equipment. And we've learned how to get the job done safely and on time. So that's that's what I mean by I'm alive because of my union, just the safety things that have been put in place. And also, I, I take it that the the union has allowed you to have health and health insurance that given your history with cancer yes. has, has been pretty important. Exactly. Exactly. If I, you know, it would have been a lot better. Um, if I, well, I shouldn't say it would be better if I have to have cancer with insurance, but <laughs> you know, just getting it is, is, uh, is kind of a bummer, but I mean, I know what it's like to not have insurance and be diagnosed with, with something as serious as cancer. Um, and it's, it's really terrifying. And if I didn't have the option to go to the medical college and, and kind of be a guinea pig, um, you know, who knows if I'd, I'd still be paying off bills. I first found out about you, I think, when most everyone else did, which is when you released your first ad. Um, and I think it struck such a chord because it's just so rare for an ordinary person and not a millionaire to be running for Congress and talking about what's wrong with this country and how to fix it in plain spoken terms. I mean, so many people, Paul Ryan very much included, they they represent their class, the ruling class, rather than their district. Tell me right. about how you're going about 
having that conversation in your district. Obviously, people like me, I'm in Rhode Island. Like we've been thrilled by <laughs> by the video. But tell me how that's playing out in the district. Well, it's it's been going over very well, especially with with uh, Paul Ryan having passed that tax scam. Uh, I mean, it's not going to benefit the people in the district. It's it's a temporary thing at at most. And if we're saving a thousand dollars on taxes, but we have to pay four thousand dollars more for health care, who's really winning? And people, it, the district went for Trump by ten uh, percent. And the reason people voted for Trump was because they wanted a change. They wanted to, sh- to shake up D.C. You know, they liked to talk about draining the swamp, but unfortunately, they didn't realize that what he planned on filling the the drain swamp up with was a lot more toxic than swamp water. And they see Paul Ryan as being the biggest swamp monster left. And it's just obvious. He hasn't been in the district for over two years having a public town hall. Wow. And you can't, you can't claim to want to represent people if you don't care enough to even want to see them. So people are upset in the district and, um, and really looking for change. A lot of people, myself included, see your race as part of a, not only a fight with the Republican, the right wing Koch brothers funded Republican Party, but also as part of a broader fight within the Democratic Party between the more Bernie Crad economic populist left and the business aligned establishment. Do you see it that way as well? No, um, I see our district. It, what we're doing is we're getting people from, you know, what you would say the the middle left to the, um, you know, like the other Bernie people, it's, it's really not Bernie people or Hillary people. We don't consider people helping us out. It's people that want to help, you know, Randy win and get rid of Paul Ryan. We're bringing everybody together. Um, and, and it's great seeing that we're able to work together. And it, it's kind of like driving a car where you just, you know, keep focused on the road ahead and every once in a while, look, look back in the rear view mirror, but just staying on task and, and it's about bringing people together and it's me. It's just my story. And people, um, are really, are really seeing something of themselves in what we're doing. Do you think though, that the democratic party has in recent years fallen short in terms of both communicating and providing a sort of politics that would be meaningful to people in districts like yours? Well, I think, uh, I mean, just seeing the enthusiasm that we've been able to generate, um, I, it would have been nice to to see this get kicked off a lot earlier. Um, but now people are seeing, you know, that there's no leadership right now. There's nobody standing up, especially Paul Ryan, a Speaker of the House. Nobody's standing up to what Donald Trump is doing and just all the kinds of craziness that's going on. Um, and I think that since we've gotten in, we've been able to see a lot of really good things happen throughout the country. The election results in Virginia, Alabama. Yeah. And even the special Senate district, the state Senate district 10 in Wisconsin, that went for Trump by 17 points and and was held by Republicans for for several years. That was a safe Republican seat. And as a result of that, Governor Walker has decided he's not going to put up a state assembly seat and there's a vacant state assembly seat and a vacant state Senate seat. He's not putting those up for a special election because he's seen, seen what's going on. Um, and I, you know, as far as the enthusiasm and the Democrats getting back up on their feet, um, you know, better late than never. And it's it's getting to the point where it's almost going to be too late. Um, and that's why 2018 is so important for us. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be. And you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is also brought to you by... 
University of California Press, which is, without a doubt, one of the best university presses out there. One title you might like is Healing from Hate, How Young Men Get Into and Out of Violent Extremism by Michael Kimmel. What draws young men into violent extremist groups? What are the ideologies that inspire them to join? And what are the emotional bonds forged that make it difficult to leave, even when they want to? Having conducted in-depth interviews with ex-white nationalists and neo-Nazis in the United States, as well as ex-skinheads and ex-neo-Nazis in Germany and Sweden, renowned sociologist Michael Kimmel demonstrates the pernicious effects that constructions of masculinity have on these young recruits. Kimmel unveils how white supremacist groups wield masculinity to recruit and retain members and to prevent them from exiting the movement. Young men in these groups often feel a sense of righteous indignation, seeing themselves as victims, their birthright upended in a world dominated by political correctness. Offering the promise of being able to take back their manhood, these groups leverage stereotypes of masculinity to manipulate despair into white supremacist and neo-Nazi hatred. Kimmel combines individual stories with a multi-angled analysis of the structural, political, and economic forces that marginalize these men to shed light on their feelings, yet make no excuses for their actions. Healing from Hate reminds us of some men's efforts to exit the movements and reintegrate themselves back into society and is a call to action to those who make it out to help those who are still trapped. Healing from Hate, How Young Men Get Into and Out of Violent Extremism by Michael Kimmel, out now from University of California Press. There's this conventional wisdom, I think, that the sort of Democrats that need to run in swing districts and swing states are basically like blue dog Democrats running away from what are described as social issues often. But you're not doing that. You're standing up for immigrant rights. You're talking about climate change. Tell me about about how you approach that. Well, it's it's uh, like we said in our first video. It's about making a bigger table and we need to be inclusive and because I think that civilizations are judged on how they treat the weakest people among them. So that's why it's so important for me to to make sure that everybody's included and when we go ahead is bringing everybody with us because um, everybody's going to have a time when they need help and the people that we're helping out now that need it are going to be there for us. They're going to remember that that they got that help and they're going to be able to help lift us back on our feet. Do you think that that emphasizing these sort of economic issues and the way that the Republican Party is pushing policy on behalf of the rich, do you think that's a way to sort of break through the divide and, and conquer anti-immigrant racist rhetoric that, that is so often proven beneficial to Republicans? Absolutely. And it's it, it's important. I try to point out, too, because, you know, we have some union members that that questioned me at one time. They're like, how can you be in favor of of helping out people that are here without documentation? And I, I tell them the problem are not the people that risk their lives to come here to try to get the American dream. The problem is that the American dream is hard for the people that 
you know, live here already to, to achieve. And we're facing the same, the same hurdles as people that, you know, are here without documentation. And it's, it's not the right way to go about it. It's, we need to bring these people in to look after them, especially when you're talking about, um, you know, like dreamers is, uh, I mean, these are people that this is the only home that they know. And just when they, when I start thinking about, you know, Donald Trump and these Republicans, it's almost like I'm ready to hear about them wanting to melt down the Statue of Liberty to, you know, to, <laughs> to put as part of that wall along the Mexican border. And it's just, it's a really scary place. Um, I know that a lot of people are afraid. And, um, you know, when I wore a uniform um, in defending this country, it was for everybody, um, not just people that looked like me. And now's the time to speak up. And, and we need everybody to move forward. I want to ask about Wisconsin. I think a lot of people look at the state as a Rosetta Stone of sorts for, for politics. Um, mm-hmm. It was a state where once upon a time, socialist mayors governed Milwaukee, mm-hmm. and which sent Russ Feingold to the Senate. And then came Scott Walker, who eviscerated unions in the state. Mm-hmm. And Feingold lost to Ron Johnson a guy who actually played a role in erecting a statue of Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> and right. then Trump won, and Clinton didn't even campaign in the state. So mm-hmm. to be pessimistic for a moment, it seems like Republicans were correct to think that if they crushed unions, they could also crush Democrats, and that they could kind of perpetuate a uh, vicious cycle where w- workers' situations declined and the potential for political opposition to them declined alongside it. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be, it seems to have worked out for them for a little while. So, so how do you fight back against that in Wisconsin? Well, well, people have been fighting back. Um, it's, you know, in addition to being as vocal as possible, people, people ask, how come you take off work and go testify? If you know that we're outnumbered, you know what the result's going to be. And I say, because once we stop doing that, we stop going to testify and, and being heard and, and stand up against what they're doing. If nobody does that, they're going to think what they're doing is okay. And uh, I mean that when the Republicans took over, they proceeded to carve up the state into gerrymandered districts. They started to um, do whatever they could to suppress voters from being able allowed to vote, which uh, also included cutting down hours of the, the DMVs when you go to get an ID, especially in rural areas, making it very hard. Um, but you're seeing things happen. I mean, there's a Supreme Court case waiting to be heard, you know, that I'm I'm quite confident that we're going to win and we're going to see some newly drawn lines. And that's over. And pe- that's over other, gerrymandering. Correct. Yeah. And people are, are getting engaged too, uh, making sure that other people know what they need to vote. Um, we're doing, you know, the whole thing is just everything we're doing now to resist what's going on. It's, we need to turn people out to the polls. And I'm, I'm really confident that's going to happen. Last year, Trump, Walker, and Ryan celebrated this deal to open a factory run by Foxconn, a company that in their Chinese factories had to install suicide nets after a bunch Mm -hmm. of employees killed themselves. And it will cost, according to one article that I read, an estimated $4.5 billion in taxpayer subsidies. Mm -hmm. And now Mm -hmm. Foxconn wants to pump 7 million gallons a day from Lake Michigan. Right. How is this playing out 
in the district and what's your take? Because it was this crazy situation of Trump kind of like the beneficent king, like you've elected me and now uh, I am I am gifting this uh, this factory as promised via my underling Paul Ryan to the people of the district. And also the CEO of, of Foxconn referred to workers as animals. Um, just to give you an idea of what they're, uh, you know, what, what's coming here. Um, but the thing with that being built, I mean, it's it's an obscene amount of money, especially when you look at one of the first things Scott Walker did was take away nine hundred million dollars from public education. This is, you know, like over three, four, this is like four times that amount. And just knowing how horrible that was for our public education system. Um, and and wanting to fund, you know, they say we can't afford one public one school system, but now they want to have two with the the voucher schools. Um, it's it's so much money, and it's unbelievable how they went about doing this. They brought it to a vote in the Wisconsin legislature. They pushed back the state budget, which was it was behind schedule. They just put that on hold in order to jam this through. Um, and not only that, but what they're looking at doing too, um, part of this extra cost in addition to the three billion dollars that they initially just gave to the Taiwan-based company. Um, what they're doing, I mean, we, we have infrastructure problems in Wisconsin, and the governor has decided to stretch out the programs instead of paying for them to be finished. It's you know taking time, and it's going to increase the, ta- the cost on the projects. Um, but we're, gonna, we're looking at building automated lanes so that driverless trucks that are going to be used by Foxconn are, are part of this deal, too. Um, we were unable to get any kind of amendments agreed upon. And because of the, the anti-worker legislation that they passed in the state, there's no guarantees that this is going to be, and I mean, talking like as far as them repealing prevailing wage, we can't have any project labor agreements on it because it, it's using public money. And the, the party of smaller government has decided to take away that option to have a project labor agreement on any any projects like that, which means that we can't demand, we can't agree to sit down and and state that a certain percentage of the workers are going to be minorities or people that were underemployed. Um, They've taken a lot away from us. And it's just an incredible amount of money. And when we're looking at the, the water, I can't believe, you know, what does, what does 7 million gallons even really look like? But, um, yeah, I can't even kind of get that picture of how much water that is in my head. You know, a day. And um, I, with all that money, and it's our taxpayer money, the people here really deserve to know exactly what we're getting. And it's really very vague. Uh, nobody knows, but there's they're in a hurry to get it built. I know that for a fact. How is it playing out in the district? I imagine some people see it as the corporate welfare uh, that it is, but, but others perhaps are like, well, a job's a job. Right. And that's, it is, it is a split. Um, surprisingly, a, a lot of people are supportive. They are believing that, um, you know, it, it, there are going to be a lot of jobs. It's going to be a big building, but the fact is, is we don't know our, there's nothing saying that Wisconsin residents are going to benefit from this with all that money. We really deserve to know what we're getting for all of that. I mean, we're not going to see any, I can't remember how many years, it's going to be decades before Wisconsin sees any kind of a return. And who knows if it'll still be there at that point. Correct, correct. So tell me a little bit about how the race looks right now. I 
believe that you guys had some internal polling recently that showed you within six points? Yes. If uh, in December, if the election was was to have taken place in December, um, we were down by six, which at this early in the race, and it's one of the reasons why we decided to get in so early was, I mean, it is it is going to be an uphill climb, um, but it's definitely worth doing. Uh, that same poll also showed that with a positive statement on both of us, that I'm actually up by 10. So it's about, and our name recognition doubled too, since we got in. And six points, how does that compare to Paul Ryan's margin of victory historically in the district? The thing is, is that last cycle, um, the person he ran against, I think, raised a total of $35,000 for the whole the whole period. <laughs> um, Congressman Pocan has, has said this is the first time he's really had a, a serious challenger. And for the past decade, I've taken anybody that ran against him, introduced them through my connections with labor, you know, through the through the unions. I'm like, this person is running against Paul Ryan. We'll get them started, get enough money, get them some help as far as um, training for what they need to do to run a successful campaign. Um, so I've done things in the past. And, and um, the last person that came the closest to beating him, Rob Zerban, um, he, within two weeks, he sent me a text. He was like, your campaign's already doing better than I did the both times that I ran against them. So it's, people are really fired up and you know, this is, it's like a perfect storm is coming together, uh, especially considering what's going on throughout the rest of the country and six points down in December, you know, 11 months left to go. That's, that's pretty doggone good against the speaker of the house. It seems like one challenge in 2016 was not so much that Trump voters turned out in larger numbers, but that a lot of Democrats stayed home. But where have Democrats fallen short in terms of firing people up historically and appealing to them? And and how are you going about changing that? Well, it's um, we already have a full-time volunteer coordinator. We're, we're setting up precinct captains. So I mean, the ground game is going to be huge. We're going to make sure that that we get ballots into people's hands, get people to the polls. Um, a lot of outreach is going to be important. And just educating people that don't know what's going on. Um, believe it or not, there are some that, that don't know everything that's going on and how you know this recent legislation is going to affect them. But people are really going to be ticked off when Paul Ryan starts going after Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And so between now and then, assuming that you're down about six points right now, what needs to happen to be up and win in November? It's it's all about name recognition. So that's why it's so important to contact the people in the district. Um, we're, you know, we just ran an ad during the State of the Union, um, and that's that's going to be very helpful means in addition to direct voter contact. Um, but it's all about just getting my name be known in the district more. And once we do that, we're going to win. Is there going to be, um, is there a possibility of a debate? Um, I, I have no idea. I would, I would think that his answer would be no. And that's just based on the fact that he hasn't had a public town hall in over two years. He, he doesn't want to see the people of the first district, which is one of the reasons why I went to the state of the union. Um, and I'm glad that Congressman Sensenbrenner brought it up because that, that helped you know, bring the issue out that I, I am going to be there. 
So he definitely knew that if he's not going to come back to the first district, the first district is going to go look at him and then have the chance to come back and let people here know what's going on. Well, Randy Bryce, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It was really great talking with you. Randy Bryce is an iron worker running to beat Paul Ryan. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once sighed after Paul Ryan lauded his secretary's $1.50 per week paycheck boost, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, leave us a review. Those reviews do help introduce us to new listeners. What also helps introduce us to new listeners is you telling your friends about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And last but not least, please find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation going. Even a few bucks is a big help. <laughs>